we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. You know, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO in Vancouver, Canada on unceded Coast Salish territories. Today is Friday, March the 6th, 2020. I am your host, Alison Cole, and I am joined here today by my guest co-hosts, Megan Beattie Hi. and Leah Thomas. Hello. Also, welcome to Jesse, who is joining us today. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. This Sunday is International Women's Day, and today is our annual International Women's Day show. We are excited to present to you two feature interviews on this week's show with thought leaders in the vegan and feminist movement. For our first interview, we'll have Amanda Houdeshell on the show, who I had the pleasure of meeting this this week via Skype, Amanda works as a campus rep for the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals and is also the co-founder of Species Revolution, a nonprofit organization that emphasizes the importance of recognizing the non-human rights movement as a social justice movement and anti-speciesist advocacy as a social justice imperative. We love that and that's a message that we always try to convey here at Animal Voices and in this interview. Interview, Amanda will speak on this topic as well as on speciesist language and how to unlearn it. And for our second feature interview, we'll have founder of the Vegan Feminist Network and author Dr. Corey Lee Wren on the show. Dr. Wren is a lecturer of sociology at the University of Kent in Canterbury, England, with a PhD in sociology and a BA in political science. In recent years, she has been researching to build on social movement theory to explore relationships between animals and non-human animals and animal liberation efforts. Her work prioritizes theories of intersectionality and oppression, especially that which manifests within social justice spaces. We are looking forward to this interview, which is coming up in 33 minutes. So as I mentioned before, International Women's Day takes place this Sunday, March the 8th. It's a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. However, I also see it as a day to emphasize and learn about feminist issues as they pertain to the animal rights movement and across all social justice issues. Uh, we three here, Megan, Leah, and I identify as feminists. That is, we believe in and stand up for gender equality. We also recognize how issues of feminism for humans have a direct correlation towards the way that female non-human animals are treated in our human-made industries that exploit animals, animal agriculture being the main one. I just wanted to take this short opportunity to ask you, Megan and Leah, what International Women's Day means to both of you as ethical vegans and feminists for equality. Why don't we start with you, Leah? 
Thank you. Um, I would say that International Women's Day for me is a day to uplift and celebrate women and other people who are victims of gendered violence, um, regardless of their species. So recognizing them and um, supporting them. We're going to hear later from Amanda. Um, she's going to talk about how um, sanctuaries, a lot of the times, um, don't get the support that they need. So if you're looking for someone to support, you can support uh, any local sanctuary or the sanctuary we featured on last week's show, Vine Sanctuary. Yeah, there's so so many good by sanctuary. You mean uh, rest, animal yeah, sanctuary or yes. or any animals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes there's peacocks at sanctuaries that I go to. <laughs> yeah, they need rescuing. Uh, so so yes, that's a great point there, and um, and that's one correlation between how feminism and International Women's Day. You speak of supporting animal sanctuaries and mm -hmm. and I would say because it's that is a social justice issue we are all we're all here to basically fight all forms of oppression whether they be animal oppression or human female oppression or just gender equality across humans the environment um, the clothing and textile industry mm -hmm. I want to think of uh, slaughterhouse workers human rights which we're going to get into in a future show. Mm -hmm. Those are just a few things off the top of my head. What about you, Megan? What does International Women's Day mean to you? Um, well, I think, too, like I definitely agree with both of you, obviously. <laughs> um, and also just speaking to within the animal rights um, movement really um, elevating and celebrating the women within the movement because what is the percentage of, like, 80% are women or more in the uh, movement it, yeah yeah it seems and, that way um um we as women seem to be doing all of the hard labor and the men are just up on pedestals and there's that whole um superiority savior complex thing that happens um so really trying to focus on the the women in the movement and all that they've done and actually um we animals uh joanne MacArthur mm -hmm. has her other really incredible um organization called unbound that really focuses on women yes. and animal adv advocacy and um um highlights uh, women who are doing amazing, amazing things all over the world, and you can find that is that is it at We Media on uh, yes. online? Yeah, it yeah, should it's be. her website. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a great point to bring that up. You know, there's so many, there are many amazing female uh, activists in the world who are doing great work, and and you know, um, you're speaking of. I think you uh, you're you're very active yourself as a leader in the animal rights movement in Vancouver, Megan, because you lead. Somewhat. Yeah, you lead the Vancouver Chicken Save, which is part yes. of the Global Save movement. We mm -hmm. were talking about on, that on last week's show. Yeah. And um, I find that here in Vancouver, it is, um, you're talking about how women are doing a lot of the, the dirty work or 
the organizing work, mm-hmm. you could say, which mm-hmm. I think is great. That's empowering mm-hmm. for us. Um, Amanda speaks about in her interview how it's largely male-dominated in general in the mm. world. But, you know, I, fa- I have found that that has actually, with certain um, scandals that have happened in yeah. past years, that that is actually changing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is a great opportunity for us as feminists and as animal activists to basically take take you know take this opportunity yeah. to to uh take the charge that we can because yeah. because we are empowered to do the work for the animals and um and we're going to get more into even, like more of these subtopics in the future interviews about i guess what it means to to be a woman as mm-hmm. a gender and and to fight for animals and to see the broad spectrum of oppressions of oppressions between all social justice issues so yes. that shall be coming up soon did you know that Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM, has over 90 different shows produced by over 350 community members? This wide range of programming produced by our diverse group of programmers ensures that we have a show you'll love. We have shows on feminism, spirituality, disability rights, politics, unions, and parenting. We play jazz, indie rock, reggae, blues, and folk. We broadcast in a dozen different languages and have more First Nations programs than any other radio station in Vancouver. Find your show on Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. All different, all the time. So we have some news to share with you now before we get into our interviews. Now, Megan and Leah, I'm wondering if you heard about the great news for the animals that will potentially be coming soon. It can't come soon enough for animals in captivity, especially our cetacean friends at the SeaWorld in San Diego. There's some big news there this week. That they're going to shut it down? Shut it down. (laughs) So this came out just this week. Senator Kathleen Galgiani has introduced a bill, like we had a bill here in in Canada, to ban the captivity Mm -hmm. of whales and dolphins in California. And we had Bill S-203 here in Canada, which passed a couple years ago. And now cetaceans, dolphins and whales cannot be kept in captivity in Canada. So um, our our neighbors to the south, which are already fairly progressive, they've had some fur bans there lately and ba- they've ha- they have a ban of um, uh, wild animals and circuses among some other bans. They're bringing this in and I feel that it has the pen- potential to to come actually i've heard someone say that it's not about if it will come it's about when it will come mm-hmm. and um and, you know SeaWorld's been doing pretty poorly since blackfish came out years ago and i just feel that this whole industry of uh, cetaceans in captivity it needs to stop so this is called senate bill 1405 the dolphin protection act and it would make it unlawful to hold breed import or export a cetacean 
The bill would ban marine parks like SeaWorld, which has a location in San Diego, from keeping whales and dolphins on display for entertainment purposes. And Senator Gagliani said in a statement, we should not rely on cruel and inhumane treatment of any creature simply for our entertainment. Dolphins are incredibly intelligent beings, she said, that suffer a range of health problems and stress as a result of being held in captivity. We hear at Animal Voices know that for sure I've done you know dolphins hold a special place in my heart and I've done quite a number of interviews mm. about dolphin behavior and captivity on animal voices check them out on animalvoices.org and the story shall continue I'm certain and and at some point in the future we're going to see this bill pass is is this for only dolphins it says dolphin, dolphins and whales, so cetaceans oh, okay because yeah. yeah that will affect mm. the Vancouver Aquarium as well because um, SeaWorld or SeaWorld has a couple, I think a couple um, belugas that of belong yeah. to Vancouver Aquarium for their breeding program. Right. Mm. So yeah. So the the law that we have here in Canada doesn't stop uh, mm. Vancouver Aquarium from actually exporting and yeah. lending, loaning their wh- whales for sperm purposes, yeah. basically. Gross. Yeah. We still have some time to come, but um, this is making headway for mm. sure. And one other, one quick, one more quick. Um, news story that I wanted to talk about for International Women's Day just because one of our very top female empowered athletes who happens to be vegan in the world is tennis star Serena Williams, also her twin sister Venus. And uh, people call her one of the most inspirational athletes in the world because she just, she does so much in her field. And now what is she, what is she doing? She's taking a stand for animal rights issues and social justice and she's creating a vegan leather line of clothing and uh, and why is she doing this she's doing this because she just thinks that you know not enough people are doing anything to help animals and that we need to we need to actually make strides and this is called activism so for any other athletes out there we're having quite a few uh, vegan ethical vegan athletes pop up mm-hmm. lately especially since I think the uh, the debut of the game changers film last year on Netflix if you haven't seen it yet, please do. And I feel that, you know, this is a start. Thank you, Serena, for doing this and for taking a stand for the animals. We appreciate it so much. And now we have our introduction for our upcoming interview, Leah. Amanda Houdeschel is the co-founder of Species Revolution, an organization focusing on educating the public about species-based oppression. Amanda studies nonprofit administration and philosophy at Cleveland State University, where she also works as a campus rep for PETA. She and her husband run a micro-sanctuary that is home to two fishes, five mice, and three cats. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. It's great to have you. So, seeing as though it's International Women's Day this coming Sunday, we wanted to talk about the link between speciesism and feminism. In the past, we've highlighted the work of scholars like Carol J. Adams, as well as local organizers like Fireweed. I wanted to interview you today because our first online interaction was your sharing of your article, The Case for Seeing Animals as Rape Victims, where you address both the co-opting on the part of male animal rights activists of the Me Too movement, as well as feminist activists who had dismissed non-human animal survivors of sexual assault. One quote from the article is, We are not comparing the experiences of animals to our own experiences. We are extending the definition of rape to include people of all species. Could you please share what feminist 
feminism and anti-speciesism mean to you and how they are linked? Why is it important that our feminism and understanding of survivors be extended to include victims regardless of their species? Well, this is a great question to start off with. Um, I feel very personally invested in this issue, and that's why I've um, written more about feminism and veganism and how they're intertwined uh, more than than other issues, um, because feminism is what led me to veganism. And uh, so it's kind of part of my story in that way, <clears throat> in that um, I found a post um, on Instagram talking about uh, the treatment of uh, you know cows on dairy farms and chickens on egg farms and uh, how these are totally feminist issues. The, the controlling of their reproductive systems is just atrocious. And uh, I felt like as a rape survivor, as a feminist, how, how could I continue to contribute to those industries knowing what I now knew? And so, um, you know, as uh, that it's been over five years ago now since I went vegan and uh, there's there's been so much in the movement to really talk about with with these issues, um, especially when the Me Too movement has risen up, and we saw on both sides of um, of really horrible a horrible handling of this uh, by some vegans, uh, and and then of course horrible ignoring by non-vegans uh, of including non-human survivors uh, in the conversation. And so I think to, uh, you know, not everyone uh, sees the link so, so obviously, of course, when they're presented first with the information. But I think that once you start to think about it, when you think about the violations of bodily autonomy that are inherent in, in every form of animal agriculture and every form of violence against animals. The entire system is built upon controlling what they get to do with their bodies. And that is such a core feminist value for, uh, for us to care about what we do with our, making our own decisions about what we do with our bodies. And so to me, it's very, that's a very clear link. And of course, another very important feminist issue is objectification. Um, and, uh, you know, looking at women's bodies as if they're objects, as if they're commodities. And we literally turn animals' bodies into objects. When we turn a cow into a hamburger, uh, when we turn a mink into a coat. And so the links are just, are so right there. And, and I just yearn for more feminists to make the connection because I think, you know, women started this movement, feminists started it, started this movement, uh, and we still make up the majority of the animal rights movement uh, and, and vegans by far. And so if we can extend this compassion to include non-human animals, it just, it makes sense. It's the right thing to do. And it is obviously the feminist thing to do. Thank you. 
Great answer. In the end of the article, you had given us a list of how we can show up in solidarity for survivors of sexual assaults regardless of their species. So one was step up, step back. Two, see victims as people, not statistics. Three, it is not men's place to tell women how to end rape culture. Four, acknowledge when you're wrong. Five, take an unapologetic stance on total liberation. Six, people do not owe you an online disclosure of their traumatic history. I really love that you include this list because it gives folks, whether they're male or non-male, survivors of sexual abuse or allies, concrete actions for them to take in order to truly stand in solidarity with survivors, as opposed to co-opt their struggle in order to progress their own agenda. Is there anything else that you would now like to add to that list? Yes, I, I found that that was just such an interesting question for you to think of to ask. And after thinking about it a little bit, um, I definitely think that one of the things that I've really seen lacking in the movement since I wrote this article uh, is an emphasis on animal care. And this is um, really, of course, it's always been lacking, but I think it's something that's uh, that I've really been exposed to in the past couple of years and uh, and personally experienced as well, the way that we uh, ignore animal the people who are um, caring for non-human animals. Uh, and I wonder why that is, because the vast majority of uh, caregivers are women. And this is, um, it, feminists have, you know, written about the general aspects of care, about how uh, care is always feminized. It's women's work. Uh, it's unpaid labor. And so it makes sense that now that many men are becoming prominent in the movement, that the sanctuary work is just being relegated to the back burner, um, I think, just more and more. And that, you know, we have men who are making like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of dollars going around, uh, you know, uh, doing speeches and, uh, and vegan outreach kind of advocacy. And of course, while this work is needed, uh, it's just the, the money, that same money is just not there for, for sanctuaries. So I think that, that if I had to, you know, emphasize another way that uh, we should be battling sexism within the movement, it would be really taking a look at ourselves and how we are supporting our local sanctuary. Um, are, are we really as interested uh, in the lives of the survivors of animal agriculture and the other industries as we are interested in, in watching Earthling Ed's latest video? Do we follow sanctuaries as much as we, uh, as much as we follow vegan influencers? Are we giving that support at least as equally and hopefully um, more to to sanctuaries than to influencers, um, because it it is a very gendered issue uh, when you look at who's doing the work, who is doing the the hard, unpaid, ignored volunteer work uh, of cleaning the stalls and getting animals to the vet, and it's not glamorous and it's hard. Um, and it's not fun to talk about in speeches and, and in our advocacy like that. But if we want to see a future for this movement, they are the future. Those survivors are the ones 
who provide their stories for us to tell. They are the ones who we show when we want to talk about what does animal liberation look like. Sanctuaries are what animal liberation looks like. And so I hope that I hope that soon we see a shift in the prioritization of animal care and of sanctuaries because that's where animal liberation is already happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really great you bring that up because we had also Patrice Jones on the show last week and she was talking about how much she has struggled in like the last two decades being able to fundraise for their sanctuary. They take over over now 700 rescued farmed animals and they're still struggling to be able to feed them all. So we should definitely be focusing our energies on helping them. So in 2018, you spoke at the National Animal Rights Conference in LA on the importance of being critical of our use of speciesist language. In addition, the website for your nonprofit, Species Revolution, features a section on language and suggests ways in which humans can counter speciesism in our language. Can you give examples of what you mean by anti-speciesist language? Yes, I'd love to. Um, so one of the um, biggest ones that we see day to day when we're talking about animals is, of course, what pronouns we refer to other animals as. And normally, you know, we, we grow up uh, that unless we know an animal personally, that we just by default refer to them as it. Uh, and this objectifies them. It makes them no different than as if I'm just talking about a table or a chair. And of course, they're so different from that. And because they're sentient and they're individuals, uh, we have an obligation to use language that helps uh, amplify this message. And, and it's such an easy thing to do, like once you start thinking about it too. Um, when we talk about language, we don't mean to put a burden on people that, that the words that they're using are wrong per se. Um, but what we want to see is a shift in the way that we are thinking about animals. And one of the ways to do this is to, to be thinking about some of the words that, that we're using. I find that when you're actually calling an animal someone instead of something, you're more likely to actually be treating them as someone. And so the way that we do our activism then changes a bit. We're talking about individuals instead of statistics, so we're actually talking about them with respect. Um, I think that, that we're more likely to actually then have that transfer over to our actions and, and respect them in our actions. And so, um, so referring to animals with personhood pronouns, saying he, she, or they, I think is one of the easiest switches to make. I also recommend that people um, say that you know when when vegans are talking about not eating anim not eating animals, you actually say that you don't eat animals instead of saying that you don't eat meat, and to you know not. Uh, then, of course, along those lines, uh, not use words like pork and beef, but to actually use the, the names of these animals, say that that's not a chicken leg, but that's a chicken leg. Always refer to the person that 
is on that dinner plate who, you know, suffered in order to end up in our restaurants and our grocery stores. Uh, I think reminding people that we're actually talking about individuals is, is important and, and people notice. People is sometimes when we first start this conversation about changing the words we use, it seems too radical or extreme to a lot of folks. But the thing is, is that even just as an advocacy tool, it can start conversations. So why did you say feed two birds with one scone instead of kill two birds with one stone? Because I don't want to normalize violence. I don't want to just casually talk about someone's death, uh, even if, you know, a lot of people don't think it's a big deal to, to do that. But the thing is, is that people ask. People ask why you said that, and then it opens the the door to a whole other conversation about animal rights. And so I think that, that there are just so many reasons to really be thinking about the language that we're using, whether it's just merely for advocacy and, and thinking about our efficacy as activists, or to really reflect the respect that we want to be showing, I think that there's so many reasons to be considering this. Thank you. I definitely agree. I feel like in the last maybe year or so since I've been really trying to unlearn my speciesist language, it definitely starts conversations in really organic ways. You know, it's become so normal for me to be using words like someone, they, when I'm talking about other animals and other people just, it, it's startling to them. It's really startling to them why I would use that language. <laughs> So you are a co-founder of the nonprofit Species Revolution. Your mission is listed on your website as dedicated to building resources for and working towards animal liberation and educating people about speciesism. Could you please tell us more about how you are or are planning on doing this? Would you like to share more as well about the type of organizing you're doing in your community, whether it is with Species Revolution or otherwise? Yeah, um, so we're mainly focusing on online resources right now. Um, so we write blog posts once in a while that we put a lot of um, work and energy into and also social media content. So like one of our um, recent blog posts is from my partner, Abhijit, who's the um, other co-founder, and talking about how the perception that veganism is, is racist inherently and responding to a lot of those concerns. And he put a lot of research into it and um, took him several months to write it but it's gotten shared around a lot and hopefully changed some people's minds because obviously there's, um, when we're talking to people on the left in particular, there's certain responses that we get from non-vegan leftists and, you know, talking about no ethical consumption under capitalism and things like that. And so we want to shift the perspective to seeing animals as fellow victims under this system, and also there are fellow victims of a racist system, and so Abhijit delves uh, a lot into that, and of course, why we should care about it for human rights issues as well, um, because of the treatment of slaughterhouse workers, and um, so that's that's a lot of what we're focusing on right now, and then we also have a small micro-sanctuary uh, in our home, 
where we have five mice, three cats, and two fishes. We love them so much, of course, and they are really great activists for their own cause, especially the mice are just wonderful in, in pictures and do a great job of you know engaging people's interest in the movement. And we've also been involved in a few other animal rescue projects locally, including Kaporos last fall and mostly, you know, a New York effort where like tens of thousands of chickens uh, are, are killed for that ritual. But uh, there's also a small ritual in Cleveland. And so we were able to rescue 48 with a great team of activists, rescue 48 chickens from that ritual and gradually found them homes. It was a very last minute effort. So we're really happy to see that happen. And we, we fostered several chickens here as a result of that. And so I think that animal rescue has, because of being involved in some of these efforts has really become a priority to me. And that's probably where we're going to gradually continue our effort as um, different things in our personal lives change and circumstances change where we're able to take in more animals. I think that that's really where we'd like to put our focus um, so that people can make this connection between, you know, these, these broad concepts of anti-speciesism and what does it mean to center animals in the animal rights movement? Sometimes these can be, you know, like broader, difficult concepts. Um, but when we connect them back to the individual survival, survivors, the individual residents on sanctuaries, I, I think that, that there's no better advocate than, than those animals themselves. And so that's where I'd like to see our future go. So we'll, we'll see how things evolve over the next couple of years. But we, of course, will continue throughout the process to share resources. I hope to soon come out with a blog post about um, how to actually center animals in our veganism, because that's a question that we get a lot. And like we talk a lot about, you know, not focusing on like vegan influencers as like saviors of animals and putting too much of the focus on them. And so then what does the alternative look like? And so I hope to provide more concrete steps that we can take to make sure that we're just being allies and not seeing ourselves as saviors or heroes because it's their movement. It's the animals movement, bottom line. Amanda, can you let us know how our listeners can find out more about the work that you do? Yes, thank you. So you can find Species Revolution at speciesrevolution.org. Uh, that's our website. And we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Leah. This has been great talking with you. You are listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Unceded uh, Coast Salish territories. I was just about to say that. <laughs>
Thank you. Dr. Corey L. Wren is an academic scholar and lecturer of sociology with the School of Social Policy, Sociology, and Social Research at the University of Kent. In July 2013, she founded the Vegan Feminist Network as an online platform to make vegan feminist theory more available to non-academics. And so in this interview, we'll be talking about the importance of vegan feminism, the role education can play in fighting oppression, and how she incorporates pro-intersectional social justice praxis in her teaching. Hello, Dr. Ran, and welcome to Animal Voices. Thank you for joining us today. Hi. So we're going to start with intersectionality. And just to give a quick overview for our listeners, in 1989, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality in her paper, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics, as a way to help explain the oppression of African-American women. As an example, the 1976 case in which five black women sued General Motors for a seniority policy that they argued targeted black women exclusively exclusively. GM stated that they did indeed hire black folks and women, but those black folks were men and the women were white. Crenshaw argues in her paper that by treating black women as purely women or purely black, the courts, as they did in 1976, have repeatedly ignored specific challenges and intersections that face black women as a group. So the current debate over pro-intersectionality is really three different debates. One based on what academics like Crenshaw actually mean by the term. One based on how activists seeking to eliminate disparities between groups have interpreted the term. And a third on how some conservatives are responding to its use by those activists. Um, I'd like to, Dr. Wren, touch on the second point as it relates to animal rights activism and your work with the Vegan Feminist Network. So could you please speak about pro-intersectionality across social justice issues and how it relates to feminism and veganism? Yeah, sure. So um, I can speak more specifically to the animal rights movement, which is what I specialize in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so historically, it's kind of interesting. The animal rights movement, uh, when it began in the West in the 1800s, the early 1800s, uh, although women were very much so interested and wanted to participate historically, it was a movement that was really reserved for, I mean, we're talking about the Victorian era. So it was a mm. movement that was really reserved for uh, middle and upper class aristocratic men to lead. In fact, I mean, we're talking about the early 1800s, the 1820s, 1830s, and this is a time when it really was unheard of and very much stigmatized for women to have any kind of voice or any presence in public spaces. So although women were very much so interested and active, it really, when it came to organizing, it really did come down to men. And Mm. obviously there were some women who resisted this, but there were also some women who kind of conceded with this and said, you know, this is, this is just the way of the world. And if we want to really help animals, we'll just, you know, we'll work behind the scenes and kind of promote men and let men do the work for us. Mm. On the other hand, there was also a lot of like the early RSPCA, which is really the founding of the animal rights movement in the West was the, yeah, which became the Royal SPCA, I think in the eight, late 18, 1820s. Or maybe even later than that. It was the 1830s or 40s or something when Queen, yeah, because Queen Victoria wasn't in on throne until the 1840s when she gave it her royal approval. Mm. That really 
from a marginalized organization into an organization that had some credibility to it. Right. But even in those early days where women were really, really um, important for the legwork for this movement, uh, they were absolutely um, really discouraged from that public face to the point mm -hmm. where the RFPCA would rely on women's labor but also said women are not really allowed to hold uh, have their own uh, auxiliary group or any of that. I mean, that changed eventually. Towards the late 1800s, women had much more of a leading leadership role. But in the beginning of the movement, I want to make it very clear, the beginning of the movement, although women were very much so involved with it, they were outright barred in a lot of ways. The RSPCA mm. said women aren't allowed to participate. So this, for me, when we're talking about intersectionality, is, is quite ludicrous. If we want to back it up just a little bit... Yeah. I know a lot yeah. of folks, when they talk about intersectionality, they start with Kimberly Crenshaw, which is great because she keyed that term, but also, obviously that's a concept that's been around for a while. And the woman I like to bring it back to is a woman named Sojourner Truth, who was a uh, an ex-slave, and she was an American woman, and she was very much so active in the abolitionist movement um, against slavery in the United States, and she was also a feminist. Mm. Now, in the early abolitionist movement, it was same situation it's very much so fueled by women's activism but again women were it was really stigmatized for women to take a public platform and sojourner truth found it very odd that she was as a black person kind of ostracized from the feminist movement which came yes. out of the abolitionist movement and then also as ostracized from the abolitionist movement because she was a woman mm. and so she very famously had this speech ain't not a woman because mm -hmm. the early feminist movement was really led a lot by middle-class white women and yeah. they yeah women of color have a space yeah so that for me is like really like that 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 speech that she gave in multiple speaking engagements that really like got people thinking mm. so so this intersectionally intersectionality concept actually goes much further back to social justice activism where women were not allowed to participate in these non-feminist spaces and then in the feminist spaces like people of color working class women irish women those types of things would be excluded as well so that is a long legacy with social justice. And now when we fast forward to today, that history, and this is the important thing we think, oh, that was so long ago. But no, mm -hmm. that laid the groundwork. That laid yes. the path yeah. followed today. So although we have this ironic position today in the, in the West with the animal rights movement, 80% of the rank-and-file activists are women, if you look, the higher up you go, it's more and more males. Mm -hmm. It's not just males physically who are occupying these leadership spaces, but it's also male kind of ways of thinking, mm. um, male types of activism, male forms of organization. So the, the whole hierarchical type of organization, like where you, you're obedient to authority, that's a very patriarchal type of organization yeah. stuff. So one of the comebacks that I'll get, oh, well, you know, look at PETA. We have Ingrid Newkirk or whatever. Great, <laughs> but Newkirk is she's a token woman in a in an activist space that's very much the male dominated and that patriarchal sort of ideology permeates our organization styles so that's really where i came from when i when i started vegan feminist network back in 2013 mm -hmm. with a woman you've probably heard of afco yes who is a vegan of color who at the time we were in our 20s and we were um we were we both met on it was kind of funny we both met on this now defunct feminist blog where we were both blogging because at the time the animal rights movement had no platform no space for mm. young women of radical positions to voice feminist um positions yeah and the feminist movement was a little bit more conducive because they want to be more inclusive but on the other hand the feminist movement in general is not very conducive to 
combating speciesism. Right. So we found ourselves in this really weird space where we were fighting for any kind of platform to talk about veganism in this like I mean we were in kind of this obscure marginalized feminist online community <laughs> whereas the mainstream communities like everyday feminism miss uh, miss magazine blog they were very much so belittling to feminism and so we realized there's nowhere in the animal rights movement for us to talk about this there's nowhere in the feminist movement that's really going to take us seriously maybe we need to create a space where these intersections can transpire and we specifically wanted to have radical voices voices from younger women voices from uh, women who are LGBT, women who are people of color, whatever it may be. Um, and that's because it's the animal rights movement just wasn't ready for it. And another comeback that I get is I say, oh, well, we have Carol Adams. Mm-hmm. Well, God bless her. I love Carol Adams, and she's done amazing work. But her, she's, she's of an older age, and she's not really in that online activist third-wave community anymore. She's you know, doing her thing. She writes books, most mm-hmm. of her books, not so much anymore, but back in the day when I was doing this, they're very expensive academic books hidden away in libraries. So Af and I had this idea where we would create a blog, which is much more democratizing, a platform that people can easily reach. You don't have to have access to an academic library. And let's create a platform for these ideas that really don't have a space in the animal rights movement or in the feminist movement or even in the critical race movement, Mm. such as recent publications that AFS has put out, is also exploring that kind of intersectional failure where the the, like Black Lives Matter, for instance, doesn't have much for animal rights. Yeah. So yeah, that's basically yeah this long history which leads us to today, 200 mm-hmm. years. That's amazing. Um, my co-host Leah has a question for you, Dr. Red. Okay. I feel like it, it's kind of already been answered. Um, the question was about non-human animal rights activist spaces being patriarchal. Um, you touched on hierarchical um, structures and stuff. So maybe you want to go to the next question, Megan. Um, okay. Um, so you are in the process of writing your third book, Animals in Irish Society, which applies vegan feminist theory to examine intersections of animality, class, and colonialism in the oppression of humans and other animals in Ireland. Um, can you share with us about your new book and the interconnections of colonization and non-human animal oppression? Yeah, they, I'm actually very excited you asked. The book mm-hmm. actually is I just got a contract for it. So right now I'm in the process of just basically changing the format, and it should be out next year. This book actually came out of an – my idea was was living in Ireland at the time. I was dating an Irish vegan guy, mm-hmm. and I had this opportunity to write a book chapter for a now-defunct uh, vegan encyclopedia project. And when I was doing the research – I just said, yeah, I'll just do Ireland because I'm here or whatever. But as I was doing the research, I realized that this – by the way, it's back in 2015. There was very, 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 very little research on colonialism and veganism, animal rights, and in mm. fact, zero, zero research out there about Ireland. This to me is fascinating because yeah. I don't think many people think about this, but Ireland actually was the very first colony of Britain, and of course, Britain is the, the great colonial empire. Mm. But why haven't we talked about? Why haven't we like unpacked that? Yeah. So the more I looked into it, the more I realized that it's uncharted territory, and I just need to write this book. And so the book, yeah, it became it became the article, the chapter, whatever. And then that project fell through. And I was like, nah, I got to keep going. Mm-hmm. So there are a few main arguments that I make in this. The first one is that uh, when we're talking about colonialism, and I'm I'm and want to give credit where credit is due kind of sparked this idea is one of my mentors is Dr. David Nybert. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And he wrote a book called Human Rights, Animal Rights. And then later he wrote um, a book about domestic, what he calls domestication, oh, where he wow. explores colonialism. Basically, he take, does a massive world history rewrite on how non-human animals and the exploitation of them is foundational to the exploitation of human groups. Mm. Fascinating book. I totally recommend it. It's 2013. And he just briefly mentioned in the book that you know, Ireland, the first colony of Britain, the whole point of Ireland being oppressed and colonized was to spread this spread speciesism. So in Ireland, I think we have this kind of romanticized idea of Ireland being this great rural idyll. But what is there today, that whole kind of, it used to be a wilderness, forested mm, island. Yeah. Now it's nothing but pastures for cows and sheep. Uh, right. But one of the things that also sparked this project is when I was visiting Ireland, and one of my friends says to me, well, what, you're vegan. What are you, you going to eat in Ireland? It's nothing but meat and potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not true because I mm. spent time. I've lived there. My partner was Irish. Said, no, 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 no. He's vegan. There's actually vegan people there. And there's this wonderful history of mm. food activism in Ireland. But what most people don't realize, in, in Ireland, they're so passionate about that colonial history, and they never want to forget it. Now, for listeners who aren't aware, Ireland only found independence about 100 years ago. Mm. In fact, yeah, 100 years ago now, uh, coming up on the centennial. And the, exploit, the, the exploitation of non-human animals was absolutely fundamental to the oppression and colonization of Ireland. Basically, Ireland was treated as an outsourced feedlot. So mm. the original colonial project began in Ireland. It began with the exploitation of animals in, in uh, animal agriculture. We had millions of Irish folks who were pushed off their land, turned into tenants, which mm. put them in a very position that's where the famous potato comes in where they're right. pushed off their land and all the land is given over to producing uh milk and meat and irish people are left with nothing but these little rocky outcrops in the back of their basically stone huts and so potatoes are pretty much the only thing that they could survive on so it's this very interesting thing where they mm. their their exploitation is based on animal exploitation right and then actually ireland has this long history of being vegetarian Mm -hmm. Ireland, now Ireland is very much so stereotyped as being a meat-eating country, but up until the end of colonialism, they were mostly vegetarian. Wow. So vegetarian is a rich part of that Celtic history, but then when under colonialism, that kind of rich, uh, uh, kind of independent culture of vegetarian is replaced with a vegetarianism of survival. Mm -hmm. And so now, it's like, well, vegetarianism is a major, the biggest part of Irish history. Right. It's now kind of become stigmatized. All oh, that's part of the famine days and whatnot. You know, a million people died. Mm -hmm. um, the, the potato failed because they were relying on one crop to survive on. But th there's just there's so many fascinating intersections there. The colonial project really began with the spread of speciesism under Britain and other col uh, other colonizers. Wow. And the other thing, the last point, the other thing is mm -hmm. not just that non-human uh, non animals are used in order to divide and conquer where you see this across the board with colonial spaces mm -hmm. irish people for instance were not seen as human they yeah. were not seen as human they were treated as subhuman they were sometimes described as the missing link between apes and humans they were described as black dark skinned which you know just goes to show how some what a social construct right. race really is because um, now we stereotype irish folks as being pale and freckly but mm -hmm. they were actually treated as white human uh non-human like uh, subjects. 
Oh, my goodness. Well, Dr. Red, I'm so sorry, but I think we are totally out of time. Um, I'm so excited to read and um, learn more about all of this, and we will um, share about where folks can find you on our social media. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada on unceded Coast Salish territories. Join us next Friday, March 13th for a show on veganic gardening featuring an interview with Giovanna Johnson-Cook. Now we'll leave you with the song Ocean Eyes written and performed by vegan musician and activist Billie Eilish. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today and remember to be kind to the animals. Shine.